Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jefferson, hell yeah. Is my video not on? Here we go. Not yet, but... All right. There it is. How are you, dude? I'm doing... Uh, I'm okay today. Awesome. Thanks Thanks for rescheduling with me, man. Um, my pleasure. We, we were just about to get in some really good stuff, but there's all the chaos of the street kind of distracting, and I like to try and just sit down and, and connect when doing yeah. these things and uh i didn't want to piss away a good conversation basically all right well you know we could have just had it twice we would have had a warm-up <laughs> <laughs> well to be honest i felt like i got a pretty good sense of some of the things that you've experienced and been through and been a part of so at the risk of you know retracing some of those initial minutes of that conversation you are a like lifelong born and bred seattle native correct well, I'm born in Tacoma, but most people don't know what that is, so they're just kind of the same. It's, it's almost 45 minutes south of S- Seattle. Right. But, yeah. So is that where you went to school? Yeah, when I went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that leads um, me nicely on to this I did. Question. I went to school down there, and when I, I actually moved out, and I was in a – I moved out at 14 years old. And uh, by the time I was 16, I lived in Seattle, and we had an apartment. And um, 
I found out that I could get, uh, they said, you know, if you're still in high school, you can get your social security payment. Cause my stepdad had died when I was like 14, 13 or 14. And so I had social security benefits from it's coming from him, but I didn't know. So when I turned 18, they said, if you're still in school, you can continue to get benefits. But my mom was getting all the benefits and I wasn't seeing any of it. So I was just kind of living on the streets and at practice rooms and stuff. So they told me they would, uh, if I stayed in school, I get these benefits. So basically I kind of got paid to go to school and finish my high school, you know? So you kind of beat the system in a way. Well, or the system did what it's supposed to do. And at that particular moment and, you know, supported me so that I could continue to go to school rather than have to live on the streets, you know? So I guess that was good. Did you have brothers and sisters growing up? Or was it just you? Were you the only child? Yeah, I got an older brother. He's I'm an only child too, though. Cause I'm a, he's adopted. Right. So um, they adopted him because they didn't think they could have kids. And uh, then I surprised him. And where was your dad? Huh? What happened to your My dad? My real dad? Yeah. Um, he, he lives in Spokane, Eastern Washington. He's kind of an ex-military uh, dude. And um, he had a rough childhood himself. So he likes to live out there in the sticks, kind of isolated. You know, he prefers animals to people. And, uh, you know, but... Once in a while, I'd get in trouble fighting with my brother and they'd send me over there to live with my dad. And so I got, that's where I learned how to drive and, you know, build fences. And, you know, I've castrated some cows and stuff when I was a kid and drove a, drove a lot of combines and all that. And I actually think I might have learned to sing out there, too, because I'd listen to my Walkman or whatever. And then while I was driving the tractor in the middle of nowhere, you could just belt it out without worrying about anybody hearing you, you know. So proper man stuff. Apart from maybe the singing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then I've been a uh, uh, contractor. I was, I had at around 22, I learned how to, I started a framing contractor business. So I've been doing that all my life, you know, just building things and making things. And that's how I supported my music habit and paid for all my early demos and all that stuff. You know, what was the, the first band that you got into that made you want to, you know, start writing and pursue music as a full-time kind of, if not career, at least passion project. Yeah. Well, the Seattle bands that I saw, you know, at 14 or whatever, before they made it definitely made me realize it was tangible, but I was one of these kids who was always writing songs. Even before I went to school, I would like take a song, a melody off the radio and I would uh, create my own lyrics and stuff for it, you know, and like change it to you know, if I was into like Star Wars or Army or something at that point, I might take a hit off the radio and then change it to be around, you know, about Chewbacca or something mm -hmm. like that instead of instead of the uh, whatever it was about. So I was always just kind of a creative kid, you know, like other kids wanted to play with their toys or whatever. I always wanted to build them little tents and little, you know, like my GI Joes, I wanted to make them a tent and I would, you know, I wouldn't, you know, it's little landscapes. I was constantly like making things. I kind of enjoyed making things more than the actual playing part. You know, do you then look at music and creativity as building? You're just building with the brain or do you look at craftsmanship and creativity as two separate things disciplines um, there's a lot of parallels and there's a lot of the same benefits you know until i was on a tour bus with uh stuck on a tour bus for six weeks with nine guys every day all day long i did not never thought that i was like a loner i always thought like i loved people and loved to be around people but all my life i've always worked so much alone 
I spent a lot of my life alone. And so I think that, uh, you know, in, in construction, you know, you definitely, there's the, in, you're intimidated if you see a foundation and you know, you have to build this house on it, you know, it's kind of intimidating, but you know, it's just one step at a time and writing songs are similar in the same way, you know, and a lot, a lot of times if you're playing with a band, you're dealing, it's similar to like being in a crew, you know, and you do the best you can and find out who's should be handling what areas. And so in that way it's creative, but also I do a lot of listening to, you know, writing songs. A lot of it is listening, not just to other people's music, but your own creation. So sometimes I'd be on a job site building something and that would keep me, my body occupied. Mm -hmm. And I was able to like reflect on the songs that I was working on so that once I got off work, I could go and try out ideas and um, that sort of thing. You know, were you, were you a happy kid, Jeff? Oh, no, I don't think so. No, I don't think I was a happy kid. I think, I think I figured myself out recently. And what I think is I'm a, uh, optimist that focuses on the negative because the positives are already taking care of themselves, you know? So I I'm always looking for what I can do to improve the situation, but I, I had a pretty tough upbringing with my parents split when I was three. And then my mom had a married an ex con and it all went to hell in a handbasket pretty quick. So when I moved out, it was when I was 14, it wasn't like I was kicked out or it wasn't like I it was just easier to live on my own than it was to live through the drama and the hardships that were there at home. So, you know, it, so I, I think a lot of that made me kind of unhappy. And I think music was my, always the thing that kind of kept me stable, you know, and the same thing too with music. Like I, I've went on some benders and had some challenges with drugs and alcohol, but always having music to focus on was always like the key thing that like kept me semi straight, you know, did you make good friends in the music community? Oh yeah. My whole entire life is all built around those people. You yeah. Know, those are all my longest relationships still. Even half the guys that, you know, even guys that I did construction for or people that I build houses for even now, or my company does. Cause mostly I just kind of, at this point, I'm kind of like a CEO or something. And then my company runs itself, you know, but I kind of check in on things. But uh, even then, a lot of the people that we work for are all based off of music contacts. And, you know, for like right now, I'm just about to remodel a bathroom for a famous Seattleite, you know, which I'll protect their identity. But, you know, so we're always doing something like that. And it's all kind of built around this community or we have like the people that did the uh, books for Alice Chains and Mark Lanigan, like we did a remodel for them. and And then also, me and uh, Ben are partners on remodeling old theater in Des Moines. So we will own it when it's done. And we're building a venue there. And that's all kind of built around music relationships and stuff, too. I met my wife from playing music. I met m the mother of my kids from playing music. It's all just it's kind of my life. That and building stuff, you know. It's nice that, you know, something can happen on such a mass scale and blow up. So it's worldwide talking about the Seattle music scene. And I guess a lot of heartache and pain and tragedy and bullshit came along with the success that that scene enjoyed. But it's nice that all the key players that were probably there before the media and the rest of the world started invading it have stayed the course and maintained their relationships and continued to hang out long after that frenzy and party died out. Is that the case? Yeah, that's pretty, we're pretty tight with a few of those people. And, um, you know, I, one time I was in uh, playing a show in Los Angeles and it was a good show. It was a small show. And my wife 
um, I was flying to those shows because I didn't want to be stuck into the, the van with the, <laughs> with the people I was doing the tour with. And uh, um, so we were flying into the show and I so I brought my wife with me and we were playing in Los Angeles and she kind of got emotional because she's kind of a, has a really big music vocabulary and huge library. And she saw all the, you know, Black Flag when she was 12 and, you know, her first concert was David Bowie and she probably knows more about current music than I do you know she's a thick record collection and a vast knowledge of music and she told me she was she was like I don't get it there's so many horrible bands out there and why don't you have your you know where is your big break or something and I actually have seen you know witness some of the hardship that these people have dealt with and I kind of feel like it was a blessing to not have a you know a big break I'm still as passionate about music as I have ever been and making records. I've not, I haven't lost a taste or I don't feel like it's a job, you know, which some people do. And, and I, had I experienced all that stuff at a young age, I would probably be a monumental asshole at this point to, due to what it can do to people's egos and their sense of reality, you know, and I'm, I'm just not sure with that, you know, some of the anger I had as a kid that I would have been able to navigate that in a healthy way. And so I could have been a casualty. So at this point, you know, I've had a slow trajectory of things happen for me through music and it's been really great. And, you know, I think that I might be just hitting my prime now versus some of these people that hit their prime at 26 years old and everything after that was just, you know, cash in the check, you know, which, yeah. uh, uh, so I, you know, and a lot of people that I admire had a, that, a similar trajectory too, that took a long time, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, Tom Waits didn't have a gold album until he was 50 or, I mean, you could see what's going on with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, but at, at 30 years old, he was still playing the Roxy, you know, and now at 65, he's probably at the peak of his career, you know, and I kind of still have hope that, you know, things are just going to continue to grow and I don't need to ever be that big, but it's nice to just, if you planted some seeds to see those seeds grow into something, you know, it's exciting, whether it's, you, building a house or your garden or your family or whatever. It's nice. If you put that effort in love into something, you want to see it evolve, but I don't want to be in a dangerous situation that actually starts to cause harm and makes me lose. You know, you can, if your passion turns into a product, you could lose your passion pretty quick. And that I would hate that. Do you have a hundred percent pride for everything you've done? Because listening to your back catalog of albums, they all stand up. And they're all great records. There isn't like that dud in the mix for me as a you know a casual listener. I've gone through and listened to all the stuff you've made over the last fifteen years that's available, and it's all just great, rich, you know, timeless music. I f I find. Well, you can just, anything more you want to add to it because I can listen <laughs> to that all day. Um, there's one. There's one record. Yeah. And, uh, is that the, the one that's I'm not making? available on Spotify? It's not available. And I have a case of all the existing CDs and I will never let them out. Is that Sexual uh, Uno? Is that that record? No, that one. That no. one's just not in print. But right. I, I think there's some good stuff on there, too. It's before that, think, is it? Uh, huh? It's before that album. Yeah, album it was you're before talking that. About. I had a band and um, I think half of the record is good. But then there was some band politics that some other guys ganged up on me and made, made me put some songs on there that I didn't believe in, you know? Right. And at this point, ever since then, you know, when you make a record, it has seven songs you love and four that you hate that you're so embarrassed of those other four that you don't want anyone to hear the other seven. I decided at that point, 
I'm going to maintain if full on veto power. I'll never put out a song that I don't believe in, at least at that time, you know, and even now some of the stuff that was early that I felt was a, you know, I think I've improved as a songwriter in some ways, but there's something about where those songs were written that I know where I was at. And I kind of like the evolution of some of those early songs were simple and the, you know, it got a little more uh, intricate as we got older. So I, I'm really proud of it. And I think that's my, you know, that's what I measure a great band by. There's some great records, you know, the first Guns N' Roses record, Sex Pistols, never mind the Bullocks. But like when you get these bands like the Stones or even the Colts, for instance, like Love Electric and Sonic Temple, that's a pretty freaking good run. If you got a band that has a three record run or a four record run of just albums that are not a stinker on any of them, that's like, I just, I've always wanted that to achieve that kind of thing and, and like put that kind of love into every record, you know? Who so, were you playing with when you first started out then? You mentioned going about town and seeing the bands who were around then. I guess we're talking mid to late 80s. Is that when it began for you or a little bit before? Well, right around 89 is when I started playing live, nine, right. 90, you know, and I probably played my, you know, like I saw Elsa Chains probably playing 88. So I was like, you know, um, I think I was still 14 when I saw him play. And then when I seen him play, it was a life changer for me, you know. I mean, I just think, you know, Lane Staley is just one of the best singers of all time, you know, and, the, and they, you know, they have such great songs and every member is just such a monster at what they did. And then, uh, which the world all recognized with those first couple records for sure changed a lot of, it changed music. I don't even think people today, there's so many bands that have imitated Alice in Chains with their harmonies and stuff that I don't think that people could recognize uh, what unless you live there, how fresh and exciting that sounded when it first came out. Now it's almost like a staple of active rock radio that people with those harmonies and that kind of riff, you know? And um, so they were a huge influence. So when I saw them play, I immediately went and uh, started writing songs. And then we found me and this bass player guy found a little drummer, but we, we had his older brother, who's still a really good friend of mine, sing for the band, but he was like, never wanted to be a singer, couldn't really sing. And, uh, you know, but he was just like, thanks guys for my, I got to have that experience, you know, but, um, right out of the gates, I think, cause I was, a, I looked like I was older cause I was kind of a tall lanky kid and I had spent years in my house shredding on guitar. And so some manager guy, uh, that I'm still friends with today, you know, called me on the phone and he was like, Hey, you want to join this other band who I'd seen? And they were already playing with Alsa Chains and stuff. So I joined them. And so I think I was 15 and they were all like 24. And, uh, I started playing, you know, with these other bands. It's like, you know, I moved out of my house and I moved into their band house and, you know, I would, I could already hang with drinking and, you know, not being goofy with, uh, drugs and stuff like that. Cause I grew up pretty rough. So I kind of, could hang with adults like that new one. If I had to puke, we better step outside and don't let anybody see it, you know, or if yeah. you're having too much, maybe just disappear and find a place to sleep. So I didn't really embarrass myself that much, but I was pretty street smart. And so I lived with all those older guys and my nickname became junior. And, uh, I just started going around town, writing songs, but we all, we had labels, we did tours, we did, you know, we had, uh, you know, demo deals and all this kind of stuff, but no one liked the singer. So, um, you know, even like the first record deal I was supposed to get, I wasn't even old enough to sign the record deal yet, you know? And so, uh, but everybody, that label ended up going under. It was actually, uh, what were they called? 
I don't know. They were all, they were part of a, a lectra in a, I don't remember the God, what, chameleon was the name of their there label. So they put out like uh, Drama Rama and uh, My Sister's Machine and stuff, which was another Seattle's band. So I got to, uh, you know, I showed the ropes pretty quick, but I did, never had a singer. So I just hung around town playing with these bands and playing guitar, but I just could never find my Mick Jagger or my Robert Plant or whatever. And so it's just like eventually a singer didn't show up to a session and the bass player, I wrote the songs sometimes, the lyrics and stuff. So he says, we were doing a demo. We won like a battle of the bands and got some free studio time. And he was too busy being Jim Morrison or something, decided it would be rebellious to just leave us hanging and not show up. So we recorded without him. And that was the first time I ever sang. And the uh, band just kind of decided right now that at that point they were like, you know, fuck that guy. He's just doesn't, you know, we're not going to play that shit. And so we booted him and I started singing at that point. And it took me a minute to figure it out, you know, like who I wanted to be as a singer and, and to be comfortable fronting a band, you know, so first you go through some intim imitating other people and this and that until you kind of figure out how you were. So I, I wasn't the type of guy that was like dancing around the house with a microphone, trying to make everybody check me out. You know what I mean? I was very more like introverted, hiding in my room, writing songs kind of guy. But then uh, it was kind of had to decide at that point, it was either have a music career or wait around forever and be at the mercy of waiting for this singer guy to show up or, you know, figuring out how to do that on my own. So that's what kind of gave me a late start. So I never probably started singing until I was 22 or 23. And then uh, when that started happening, things started, doors started opening pretty quick. So I guess I'm glad I did. And you, I guess, watched, you know, the media descend on your town and every band gets signed up. You you saw that invasion happen firsthand, right? Yeah. And I, I just think I was too young. And like I said, I did wasn't with the right people. You know, so, so many people think it's not just one person thing. You know what I mean? There's you could be so driven and so good at what you do, but it, it's like also that chemistry of finding the people around you that even if you're a visionary person to find the people around you to support that vision and to put all those people together. And, you know, we had like, have a joke, like what's the best quality in a band member. And that's like, they actually, they show up, you know, so you can have some other guy that's a genius player, but he don't show up or yet, or you get everything going and some guy has a kid and, and a wife and decides, you know, in a girlfriend, he decides he's going to drop out and raise that kid after you just invested two years of building up a following. And it's like, so you're at the mercy of all these things, you know, yeah. And um, it's not, which makes it hard. And there's a lot of talent that, and at that age, you're so loyal to your friends to where you can't go, you know, loyal to a default, you know, to where you're going to hang out with some guy that's obviously a drunk fuck up for years because he's your brother, you know, but you know, that guy in the minute, if he got some offer, he would go. And I got to say, I've had some things where people were like, you know, we'll take you, but not the band. And you I always said no. Chose, I always chose the band, you yeah. know, so if you want to be successful, screw your friends and, uh, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, I'm just saying, Take the in the check. Long run, yeah, <laughs> in the long run, I'm happy with those decisions, but I definitely had, you know, been through enough of that and got to a certain point to where I still try to make sure that, uh, you know, everybody feels a part of it, even if, you know, and included, but I gotta, gotta be like, if someone, I can't have people hold me back, you know? I'll tour, have to do what I got to do. Cause to me, it's, you're putting your happiness in the hands of another person and you just can't do that. So there's a certain amount of compromise, but at a certain point, it's like a deal killer. You got to move on, you know? 
and and if tomorrow you know ben decided he didn't want to tour and the drummer broke his will broke his legs i, I guess it would be time for an acoustic record you know because i just i gotta get it out if i don't get it out they would be horrible friends to keep me from getting it out because it it would be it would hurt me you know i mean mentally and emotionally it would be devastating to me to not be able to create music so i'm sure an acoustic record would work pretty damn well as well with your style of songwriting but before we go there uh mother love bone did you get to catch them back in the day yeah i opened up probably one of the last shows mother love bone maybe three weeks before andy passed and it was a huge thing you know what's funny is uh this the same manager guy that picked me up he was booking this club in Tacoma called legends and they gave me the offer to open for do i want to open for uh nirvana and the melvins or mother love bone and i actually I was like, I'll take the Mother Love Bone show, please. And so we, uh, which is funny because, you know, Nirvana, they both went on to be Pearl Jam and Nirvana. But um, I mean, I must have been, what was that, 1990? When that, 91? So, you know, I think I was 17 when I opened that show. You know, everybody else was going to high school and, you know, growing pubic hair or whatever the hell they were doing. I was <laughs> I was out there playing with, you know, rock legends at that time. I was, re I was ready. You know, I mean, I just knew I wanted to do that since I was a kid. So I was a big fan of them too. And I'd seen them play with Allison Chains. Maybe uh, that was probably the second show I saw. I think, I can't remember if it was the first show or the second show. I think the first show was Allison Chains at like the Rent Musician Hall. And the second show I saw was Allison Chains and Mother Love Bone at the Kent Skate King. And both of those shows maybe had 100, 200 people tops at those shows. So I was very fortunate, you know, to see those shows. And even early on, those guys were both gigantic front men, were they? Just larger than life forces yeah, I mean, on stage. At, at the first, Alice in Chains was, I would say he was more of a front man there than he was later. Because later he kind of, I think a lot of singers kind of play this, you know, they take a role of either they're going to jump around and try to get a, a crowd going, or they're going to stand in one place and execute the songs sing them as well as they can like a mark lanigan or lane staley or something like at first he was very much you know had a lot more theatrics and going for it and then and i don't think you know i think people could say it was drugs or this and that but i actually think he just made a conscious conscious decision of like i'm not going to be a clown i'm going to be a freaking i'm going to you know i want people to be here to hear me for the gift that he had you know and of course the check that he was writing as a singer was pretty hard check to cash mm -hmm. so if you were running around trying to do jumping jacks on stage you could probably interfere with your ability to hit that but um andrew wood of course was super charming and you know a different type of singer it wasn't all about uh vocal acrobatics but you know he just he definitely had that thing that maybe like a singer like ozzy or somebody had to where you just you just love them and want them to win you know yeah 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 so some singers that are like the coolest guys you've ever seen. And you're like, I want to be as cool as that guy. There's other guys that are like Angus Young or something to where you're just like, why shouldn't that guy win? Why shouldn't we all be clapping for that guy? You know, where they're almost like the underdog or something. And I think Ozzy's a bit that way. Yeah. You know? And uh, we did a show with Black Sabbath in uh, Europe one time. And I got to stand on the side of the stage and you could just see that people just love him. They don't care if he's singing on key or clapping off beat. It's just, they just love Ozzy and he's not the world's best singer, but he has something that he has a magical appeal. And I think that Andrew Wood had that same thing as well as, you know, he was a good singer and a good songwriter as well, but uh, he definitely had that same kind of a aura or a 
you know, ability to connect with people in a way that's pretty beautiful. And then was like the sort of Melvin's Nirvana camp, was that almost a different thing stylistically and, and everything else? Because they were definitely like a more coming from more of a punk sort of hard edged sound, right? It seems like that. Less rock yeah, and roll, you know, less theatrical. Yeah, there was a band in, in Seattle like called The Accused. Are you familiar with them? No. Well, they were pretty big, and Tom Nehemiah from that band went on to play in Grunt Truck. So before, you know, there was that big thing that happened in the late 80s to where you had, like, you know, heavy metal and punk. But there was, like, this separation when you kind of had all your bands, like, that were taking over MTV, and they were kind of hijacking hard rock and turning it into boy bands, you know, with your poison and this and that. And I think that, uh, or even, you know, to where, but I think that all those people in Seattle were kind of growing up on something that was 10 years behind the times because – now everything's pretty instant with the internet. And I think that uh, my opinion from living here at that time was there was this thing to where there were, there was like your metal and your thrash metals that was coming up, you know, and you had bands from here like Sanctuary and Metal Church. And then you had Queensryche, you know, and then there was also your older bands like Heart and stuff who are kind of more classic rock, you know. But I think all those guys were growing up on Aerosmith and punk and then, but some of those guys, you know, were a little more metal. And some guys I think were like, dude, I'm never going to fit into the pretty boy category. I'm never going to be look as cool as Aerosmith or whatever. So I'm just going to go more the metal route to where I think that uh, my opinion is they were listening to like probably full on metal and they were listening to punk. And a lot of that was, you know, due to bravado and, you know, and I don't think, and I think the genius of Kurt Cobain was, of course, he also recognized the melodies and stuff of the Beatles and stuff and was into that to where there was this like elitist, you were either heavy metal or you were punk or you were glam or you were metal. And I think that bands like Jane's Addiction from LA came along and they were like, made it, you could like Susie and the Banshees and the Cure, but you could also like Led Zeppelin and Bad Brains. And they kind of, and then with Lollapalooza and stuff kind of kicked the door out and they don't really get the credit for that because I think, you know, and I think some people have said that like, you know, Green River saw yeah. Jane's addiction play in LA and Mark Arm was like, I'm going to be punk. And Jeff and Stone were like, I want to go this route, the more Aerosmith Led Zeppelin route, more like, you know, a classic rock vibe versus a punk rock, you know, Punk for the whole idea of being freedom has a pretty confined idea of what you're allowed to do and be punk, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah, you know yeah. I mean, they sure have a uniform that you have to wear to be punk. I love punk rock. I love the dead boys and the, you know, all the, especially all the earlier bands, the dead boys, the Ramones, the, you know, sex pistols and all that, but uh, gun club, stuff like that. Um, cramps. But I think that, and then, you know, of course, mother love bone had the big round hats and the big glasses and all that. It was, you know, they were, hugely influenced by Jane's addiction, I think, you know, and I, uh, Jane's addiction probably should get a lot more credit for what they did to the Seattle scene. And one of their songs actually broke up here on the radio, Jane says, and they played the Paramount. Their first soul kiss video was filmed at the Paramount in Seattle. And the bands that opened that show were Soundgarden and Mother Love Bone, you know? Wow. So yeah, they like, were the godfathers of alternative rock, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, and for a minute he was, you know, Perry Farrell was kind of the, uh, you know, the Jesus of, he was the alt-right rock messiah, you know, and then I think that, you know, their band, of course, a lot of those bands 
things just happen too fast to people at a young age and they kind of lose touch with who they were or what they were doing that made them magical. Same thing, you know, once James Addiction lost the bass player, something was missing, you know. And we've toured with them and they've made some good music, but those first two records are perfect. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like Yeah, man. Perfect. There's not to me, they're like that. That's the high water mark. You can't make a record better than that, you know. What sort of a reputation did a band like the Melvins have on the scene back in the day? Because they were one of the first, right? But they didn't really associate for too long with the burgeoning grunge thing, did they? Well, I mean, I think you can listen to the Melvins and see why. You know, I love the angst of the Melvins and I love the rawness and everything. But it's like, you know, there's definitely something about them that's a little more brutal or a little more, you know, it's definitely the kind of music that inspires people, but is never going to break through to the masses, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and I think that they, I don't, I, I don't know what they think, but if I was their band, you know, I probably would have said, you know, these are the strengths of what our band has. Let's build upon those, but we're never going to, we're a square. If we're going to try to have mainstream success, we're like a square peg trying to fit in a round hole. It's just never going to happen. It's not going to cross over to uh, the other bands where it's, you know, Kurt Cobain with his dreamy blue eyes and a good bone structure and uh, those good melodies has the ability to make that get over that fence, you know, or bust through that ceiling or whatever, you know. There was a lot of hell raisers on the scene back in those days, wasn't there? A lot. What do you mean? Like just crazy fucking alcoholic, drug addict, lunatics. (laughs) They were all all creative geniuses, but... You know, I mean, like Lanigan's book, some of the stories from, you know, he's so open and honest about the shit he used to get up to. And you read about like Jerry Cantrell and obviously, you know, Lane. And it seems like there was just a lot of fucking destructive behavior going on. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens when you, you know, give kids the key to the candy store. You know what I'm saying? I think that. uh, uh you know, we talked a little bit about this before. To to me, you know, th- those people had a spotlight shine on them, but I don't know that their lives were that much different than a lot of people. Like every, my whole childhood was riddled with, you know, crack addicts and cocaine and and uh, heroin users and stuff like that. that. Was my my stepdad and him and all his friends? You know, you know, my uh, cousin spent seventeen years in prison due to cocaine, and he started getting locked up at like sixteen, way before. I knew about the Seattle bands. I just think that nature, you know, that whole, I think the whole free love thing eventually had a hangover from the sixties. And then through the seventies, it started catching on everywhere. And you know, the, the real handle of drugs started to happen. And then of course, a lot of those people, it's just, I mean, drugs are great. If you want to escape the world, drugs are fucking amazing, but you know, most people can't hang and eventually it's going to take them down. And I just think that uh, if that's your, identity i think you know and it's so shocking you know what i mean it's like you got some story about uh i'm just over it you know what i mean the whole story of like you know people it's almost like people think that you know if i don't have some kind of heroin drama or something then i don't you know i don't have a real rock and roll story at that you know at that point so i'm not saying that those people have you know it is a conflict. So it creates a good story. It's a challenge that, you know, you see this problem that someone's going to have a hard time getting out. And I think people like to see people, they wonder what that's like, or how do they over 
see, especially if someone overcomes it and gets sober, you know, like I'm a sober guy. My personal opinion is I don't want to bore anybody with a book about how I got fucked up and I got sober. You know, I mean, to me at this point, it's just a shitty, sad tale. And and I think that some people, you know, they want their artists to go to hell with gasoline in their pockets, you know, just to kind of some people think that you have to live through that to be some great artist. Where you got guys like Bruce Springsteen that never even had a drink until his third album. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? It was so you, what you're saying is the drugs were already there before the music scene kicked off. Yeah, that, the drugs yeah. were there and people were having problems with drugs. And I think, you know, uh, but I do think that there's some, you know, something to a 25-year-old dude that, you know, you just feel impossible. And, you know, that's the beautiful thing about young people is that they'll take some chances that older people weren't. This is why you have soldiers in the army that are 19, because they're going to go be a hero. You give a guy that's 25 a gun, he might go, well, what the hell did they do to me? And then he's going to go find a tree to hide behind. You know, it's the same thing why, you know, if you're a major label or something, you're going to exploit these guys, how sweet it is that they're going to cause a bunch of chaos and confusion. And then people can just like, cash in on that. It's basically just a, a marketing tool at some point. You know what I mean? So it's like, if you look back at like, it's so sad at the time I was like, would see it too. But if you look back on, go on YouTube and look up MTV news on all the chaos, you know, Kurt and Courtney are a freaking publicist's dream, you know, and you can watch that Oasis movie when those guys got arrested on the boat, what they, they call their manager. And what does he say? He says, brilliant. brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's like, so, Alan McGee, good friend of mine, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah. And yeah. He, you know, it's a publicist's dream. So I think yeah. all that stuff, you know, and he he fell foul to that whole thing as well. You know, he fell foul to the rehab and mental breakdown. And I think sometimes, if, particularly if you're just courting it because you think it's dangerous and exciting and, you know, sexy, it's only ever going to end badly. Yeah. And, and it is for a minute. You know, even if you can have a couple of drinks, it'll imperi- You can Everybody gets pulled over for driving with their lights off because you can actually see better in the dark. And every great, all these great novelists couldn't say what they actually thought until they had a drink. And then once they did, they, it spilled out of them. And then that becomes a crutch. But as you can see, talking to me, I got no, no problem spilling out what I think without, I don't need that stuff to help me. But, you know, I mean, I definitely had my challenges and I had, a, you know, I had some friends that, you know, had a real hard time and I've lost friends to this same kind of stuff or they get so bad at the drinking that it's suicide or whatever, or drinking and drugs because they just don't see a way out. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that I really love, a lot of them have recovered from it and grown from the experience. But if you, most of the people that I know that had the hardest issues aren't about, aren't out bragging about how badass they were, you know, they're, they're usually embarrassed of it and they don't even want people to know, you know, and, yeah, you know, to where it's almost like a certain like a you get a rock and roll merit badge because you shot heroin. You know what I mean? Which I think is just fucking sad. You know, um, was Andrew the first one to die? I mean, not in my world, but he was the first rock star. I think at that time, you know. But you know, now that you're looking back, and now they're finding out that that's probably what killed you know Jim Morrison. Yeah. Right, and uh you know, a number of other people have died from the time, but that they were dropping like flies during that time. Cause heroin was definitely like, like you said, it was the sexy thing at the time, you know? 
Well, that wasn't necessarily what I was saying. Certainly not. I was. I mean, I was more trying to get to the bottom of how much the infiltration of that drug damaged and destroyed that scene. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it, it did. It damaged those people that had the access for it. But it's like you know, and it damaged some other people. And I definitely have you know one of the members of postpartum depressions out there still doing that shit. You know, and it damaged our band. You know, and uh damages people touch i've you know i've definitely played with a few hardcore heroin addicts in my day and i've definitely lost lost a few friends to it myself and i it just um i can't uh yeah it's hugely detrimental and ruined a lot of other people's lives in and out of it you know but i don't think it's just it's not just rock stars those guys have a pretty easy go of it because they have a budget and people are throwing drugs at them because they want to hang out with them the guys that have it really bad are the guys that are living in the tent under the freaking viaduct right now and are having to you know do god knows what to to get a fix just to get through the day you know and then the same thing with all the fentanyl and prescription drugs and how that you know some housewife that never thought i mean i had i knew a friend that was a lady and then she you know started getting on the pills i mean and this was 10 years ago or something like that she started to get on the pills pills got too expensive next thing you know she's never dreamed she would be doing heroin never yeah imagined it and all of a sudden when you can what costs two hundred dollars in pills you can get for 20 bucks in heroin you know and then you know eventually it killed her you know and so it's like i just don't think there's any glamour in it to me at all i think it's just fucking horrible you know it's interesting as well isn't it we'll move on in a minute as well but it's interesting that in the 80s i guess there was the crack epidemic and i guess white communities and politicians and parents the parent groups had very little sympathy for what was happening to the black youth at that time. And now it seems to have switched, doesn't it? And it seems to be a lot of white kids and, you know, middle, middle class, fairly well off white people who are becoming, you know, victims of these things. And now it's almost like they're finally taking notice and, and going, shit, this is a real problem. You know, and yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of a sidestep, but it's just, it, it was crazy what was going on with the crack epidemic, how little was done at the time. And now it yeah. does seem to be a problem because it's like a white problem. It's a real problem. Well, and that's the problem with all of it is, it's a, you know, people are treating it like it's, you know, it's a health issue, you know, not just the individual health, but it's a public health issue. You know what I mean? And, and uh, I think people just want to, you know, it's like someone made a decision, you know, people, a lot, all of us every day are making good and bad decisions, you know, and some people made some bad decisions and they played with something that got out of control, you know, same thing with alcohol. It's like, I know, I think, you know, alcohol kills a lot of people, but they call it liver disease or a car accident or, the, or heart disease. You know, it's, it's not, or cirrhosis of the liver. They don't call it alcoholism. You know what I mean? But really, yep. you know, those people poison themselves to a point to where they died. And, you know, I've seen, uh, seen it witnessed it happen to people, you know, I've actually had, you know, a few friends have had close calls now. It's like, I've lost a friend to it recently that was sober for years. And then, you know, started drinking again and then didn't last six months, you know? And so, and so I have a few other friends at this from the, you have those learning experiences. Now when I see someone going to, I'm pretty much knocking down their door and blowing up their phone, trying to help them out as much as I can to like try to see another way. But it's like, you know, if people are, they just can't think clearly in that situation, you know, they filtered out any alternative life. They just can't imagine their life. Their brain is not operating at a, at a full 
you know, it's like they say you can't, you know, if, if someone's signing a contract or they're doing something like that, they can't sign because they weren't in the right mind at the time, right? Any person that's drinking and driving that started that car up and thought they could get home was not in their right mind at that time. Any point, you know, so, you know, this curiosity, creating a curiosity for those things, you know, and people, you know, dabble in these things and they get deeper and deeper or whatever. And they, uh, or some people that get hooked on pharmaceuticals by accident and then it ends up killing them. You know, I think that that's a, it's definitely a health issue that people should be treating as a health issue, not just as like a drug problem, but I don't know the answer. You know, uh, my wife is pretty uh, interested in it. And like, I mean, not just interested, but she takes some action and kind of uh, is, you know, tries to make a difference in some ways, but um, it seems to me that, you know, they should be a lot more money spent on treatment and, you know, and opportunities for these and definitely decriminalizing, you know, drug offenses and stuff, you know, throw a guy in jail for stealing a car stereo, but don't throw him in jail for having a drug problem, you know, but uh, yeah, I don't, but, you know, I would have to see the statistics. I'd have to have the information and know what the you know right thing to do it is do about it is. But, did you pull know. yourself out or did you have somebody help I you? I had some help, but I, I definitely pulled myself out. You know, I actually saw uh, I have a going deep, man, but I got I, I mean, I have some daughters and. uh I just, I read something someday, you know, and I mean, I was definitely uh, a functioning uh, alcoholic, I guess, you know, I still went to work, I did my thing, I still made money, but um, I also, uh, you know, smoked a lot of pot and did, you know, and I was doing pills and coke and stuff like that. But to me, it all seemed like recreational. And some people, when I got sober, were like, I didn't even recognize that you had a problem, man. But I just like, I knew that, uh, I wasn't reaching my full potential. And then I was starting to get the freaking how expensive it was, you know? And when I, I wasn't able to see it, but then when I was doing the math of like, you know, that what this cost a month to do it and, and just looking at like, you know, how those resources could be better allocated to me and my family. And then I just, I saw something that said I had, someone said that they got sober because they had no desire of them, their children seeing them that way. So my kids were still young enough to where I was just like, you know, maybe five and six. And I was just like, I don't want to ever have some, I lost my shit because I was drunk and said something that they're going to remember for the rest of their life you know what I mean? Or mm -hmm. they found drugs in my thing and thought he does it. So well, I guess I'll do it. You know, I just, to me, that was all I needed was to like, just think about, uh, you know, I had them, so they were my purpose. And then once I reached out, they definitely had the musician's assistance program. So a manager got me into that. So I went and did a rehab and, the, uh, you know, they paid for the whole thing. It was a beautiful thing and they still do a lot of good work. And if anybody wants a good charity, that's the one I always give to because I know they're doing the right thing, you know? So, uh, helping out a lot of musicians that wouldn't, you know, some people want to do the right thing. They just don't have the resources to do it. That's why they should have more beds and treatment centers and, you know, halfway houses and stuff like that, you know? And parenthood was a key insp like inspirational driving force. Was it? That was like one of the main ones you would say that definitely helped you pull it together. And yeah, that was the only one. I mean, if I didn't have them, I was, you know, I only had myself to answer to, you know, but I, you know, and if I want to beat up on myself, that's okay. But, you know, if, if what you're doing is going around and it's harming other people, then 
uh, I kind of look at that a little bit differently. You know, you know, it's like smoking. You know, if you're going to smoke, cool. Go outside and go 20 feet away from the building. You don't have to, everybody else don't have to smoke. And that comes down to this COVID shit. You know, people that aren't getting, it ain't about you, buddy. You know what I mean? Your mask or your going out and breathing heavy at the bar could be killing that guy's grandmother. You know what I mean? And it's the same thing with cigarettes. So it's like, sometimes there should be, people shouldn't have resistance or making the rest of the world suffer because of their, uh, for their convenience, you know? And so I didn't want my kids to suffer for me wanting to not accept reality at that point, you know? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. What did you notice from a creative and performance point of view change? And obviously there must have been quite an daunting at first but then very exciting and rewarding transition that you make from being always under the cloud of something to present and in the moment and because obviously the the common misconception is that that stuff you need to be artistic but obviously really you are artistic and that just gets in the way doesn't it and then once it's gone is it a trip um yeah i mean that that was definitely one of the first things was i was i went and once i got a rehab and was sober for a month i went and bought a kick-ass guitar because i was like i would have spent that much on drugs and alcohol in a, in a month you know and then uh i think uh i put out you know a records pretty much back to back right after that you know because it was just spilling out of me so um which records yeah. were they jeff um the, the last record that i made that i was uh high during making it would have been the missionary position diamonds in a dead sky Right. But once I got sober, we followed that up pretty quick with consequences. And then the first walking papers record was done within, you know, I finished two records within two years after that, you know, and then I would have been finishing more records, but the complications of starting to be on labels versus making records on your own and stuff like that started to put delays. And then, you know, sometimes the wagon that you're hitched to, or, you know, has can slow you down or send you in different directions, you know? So it definitely increased my ability to get things done. You know, that's someone, I think Brian Eno said something about like, I've never heard anybody come up with a good idea stoned, right? In the studio. You think think it might, you think it's good stoned in the moment. (laughs) But I think that's bullshit. Yeah. I think a lot of good ideas are probably coming up with people that are stoned and a lot of bad ones. But one thing I know for sure 
not a lot. It's a lot easier to put the uh, to follow through with those ideas and make them turn into something, you know. And I don't have a problem if someone drinks or smokes weed and they, that like sends them a spark or puts them in a certain place, you know. That's fine. I don't think it's necessary, but for some people, if that sets their mood and that's what, you know, marijuana does is actually puts these parameters and it makes you hyper-focus, but you might hyper-focus on video games or movies, or you might hyper-focus on writing a song. But when that thing starts to become where you're an, an irritable asshole, if you don't have it, you know, and you have to be, you, the first thing you do in the morning is wake up and smoke weed and throw back a spark malt liquor before you can even accept your deal with your angst for the world, you know, uh, then it's, it isn't helping you at any point. You're just, it's just clouding up what you're trying to do, you know? And, you know, the, the fortunate part, not just the creativity, but you don't have to sit in some sweaty, gross apartment with some people that you would never hang out with otherwise if yeah. you didn't. Your social circles change, to. right? Right. That's the biggest benefit of it all. <laughs> i mentioned this to you the other day and i i really believe that as good as that first walking papers record is the second walking papers and then the most recent one for me are much more interesting and and layered and and superior records obviously when you get all the players in that you have for the first album i imagine it gets notoriety and attention and press and things like this but have you found that since you've sort of made the band the band and and have developed more just i guess as a band leader within that context have you found your songwriting has improved within that dynamic um i don't know if it was the record the seems to be getting increasingly better well i appreciate that i think that the song one thing that i liked when i first worked with barrett is barrett was very much like let's get something done on the first record we really re rehearsed like six times and then he had studio time so the, uh, you know, the reality of it is that I had some of those songs already written, but it was recorded super fast. Right. You know, and, and with not a, not a lot of thought put into it. So, excuse me for a second. No worries. So the big thing, the difference is, is that, and that's like the thing that what I get if I'm working with, with uh, Ben Anderson. And, and when he, he came in and did some overdubs on that record, but even if you look, listen to the missionary position records, they're really like, there's a lot going on on those records, but yeah. we didn't have much budget. So they are kind of low budget. We made them in our home studio in our practice room. I mean, all the two post-artum records and the two missionary position records were made in a practice room. Like there wow. was no studio. Right. And so, uh, great arrangements yeah, track. that goes to show great arrangements go a long way. Yeah. And, um, so then when I worked with Barrett, we went to a real studio and then you got budget and you're in a hurry and, you know, all these kind of things. And then uh, he's very just wants to, you know, really just fire things out. He's very like instinctual. But like as a lyricist in a and for production, you know, like you could put some thought in. So when I work with Ben, Ben's very uh, holds a magnifying glass up to anything that I do. If I write a song, he, he expands on it. So what you hear in the second record is the first record, he played keyboards on a couple of songs and so did Duff play bass on a couple of songs. But on the second record, you actually hear what, what, what happened when we were allowed to like indulge in those things. So even with Barrett, he was very much like, hurry it up, hurry it up. We're going to make a double album. We're going to be, you know, and what we allowed ourselves actually to take the time to actually flesh the songs out. Right. And, uh, 
and that's what you're hearing what you're hearing from the first record to the second record is the influence of ben anderson and him amp magnifying the work you know it truly is what you you know i mean we did play live for a while so we grew as a as a rhythm section you can't ask for a better rhythm section than duff and barrett but you know a lot of what's making those records sound bigger is like the harmonies and the and the melodies and the and you know and uh working on the layers of things that are going on and keeping interesting things happen and that's all ben and was it just hard trying to keep all your schedules together obviously then guns and roses happens again was it just a case of like you were waiting around for too long to get those guys together so you just had to go and find the players to make it happen or well we made the record yeah and then and, we found- and, and, and toured right for a while well, no, we t- we made the rec- the second record in uh, 2015, so the record was done and it sat there. For and that years. was with Barrett and Duff. Yeah, Got and so we made the record, but then the Guns N' Roses thing, you know, Duff called and said, you know, uh, he said, guys, I can't support this record, and he didn't even tell us why at first, but I knew why because he had just went and did the shows with Axel down in South America and stuff, and I was happy for him, but it did. We were kind of in limbo there for a minute, and then I think Barrett kind of looked at it as a step backwards you know and i think what he he said to me was any band without all the original members is uh is a uh, joke and i said you're the second drummer of screaming trees dude <laughs> and i was like and you and i are the original members you know what i mean but uh and so then there was kind of actually some confusion about how the songs were coming out and then i thought maybe you know i wrote the majority of those songs so i was like man i'll can if we're not gonna put that record out can i just take them and record them on my own and then they were like you know barrett was like hell no you know he was like and it, this is one of those things in that band i gave equal shares to all the songs to everybody in the band being a team player and just being like you know it shouldn't be you know if even if i wrote the songs i figured we're all a band let's just share the money but when you do that you also give people control of your songs so he had control of songs that I wrote. And, you know, since he had time invested in two, he didn't want to see me leaving with those songs. So then the label, the record was just stuck there. And then I got an offer to make the Static Land record. And so I had to do it. I had to do something. I didn't know that I would ever make another Walking Papers record. But at that time, I had, so I had to write the whole Static Land record in like six months. And, and so, I churned it out and kicked it out really quick, but then you finish the record and it takes six months till it's going to come out. And when Duff and Barrett bailed on the thing, the walking papers record deal died. So it was the only way I had to get paid to make records. So then I did that. And then I toured on that and then I had a no compete clause for a year. But by then all the weirdness of the, uh, of the band kind of settled. And then Barrett asked me to sing some songs for him at some show one day. He was like, I'm going to do a solo show. If you come sing, some walking paper songs at it. And I was like, okay, you know, as if nothing had happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, I don't know, I get pretty precious and, and protective of my work, you know? So I was definitely upset about it and he's got to do what he w- wants to do, but I didn't think it was very, uh, I don't know. In my, in my opinion, even if I could go back in time, I had to do what I had to do. I, if I could go back in time, I would have just put the record out and not toured on it. But so, and then I would have just put the static land record out and focused on that. But then when I played those shows with him and then he did a little tour and he asked me if I would just come and sing a bunch of songs for that thing. And then I was like, and so then I could see that he was trying to have an olive branch going on there. And I was like, yeah, I'll accept it. And so I did the tour with him too. And, and then I let him use my van and trailer for his tour. Right. 
and then he was like, you know, if you want to do the walking paper stuff, um, you know, you feel free. I'm not going to stand in your way. So let's put, it's time we put the record out. And so once he did, I was like, cool. Cause, and then I was like, well, we got a couple months to wait until my other thing is done. And then when it was done, then we put it out. And then I was like, if you want to tour it. And he's like, no, go ahead. And so I, you know, put together another band to tour it. And uh, that's what we've been doing since. And then, so now I'm free to, you know, Duff and playing with Duff, especially Duff and playing with Barrett was to open, opened a bunch of doors for me and with a lot of connections with like promoters and, and stuff like that in Europe, especially. And Duff was like, dude, I never knew we were going to all play together forever. Anyways, he goes, I just want, thought you were a great songwriter and I wanted to open the world to what you were doing. So he did exactly that. We're still really good friends and I'm, uh, couldn't be more thankful. Him opening those doors probably did more for bringing my music to people than anything anybody else has done for me. Right. Sincerely, you know, so, um, I have no resentments or regrets at all that. I'm actually have gratitude to both of those guys, but you know, I also got to move on and now they open that door and more people know walking papers than any of my other bands. So that's obviously where I'm going to make, it's still just my songs, whether it was walking papers or the missionary position or postpartum. I wish it was all under one umbrella. Yeah. Wishing is a lot like uh, <laughs> playing video games gives you something to do, but it ain't going to get you anywhere. You know, you, you look at all three projects really as a, a continuation of your creative spirit. Then you don't look at them as different lanes of your creative brain. Yeah. I mean, and if you ask me, the closest thing I ever did to a solo project was the first walking papers record. I think Barrett, Barrett produced it and he put the energy in some of those songs. I was going to, I had some of those songs I had already dead when I was in postpartum depression, but I never believed in it. I played him some songs I said, and he said, that song's great. Let's do that one. Same thing with the butcher. I had that since for that time. So a lot of the walking papers records were actually like songs that I didn't use on other records for one reason or another. And so he saw the beauty in those songs and uh, encouraged me to pursue them. So that's kind of what a good producer does. And I think Barrett is a good producer, you know? And so and then a couple songs, of course, we did were inspired by us jamming together. Um, and and then so the second Walking Papers record is actually closer to what our a collaborative band. You know what I mean? And what was the um, name of the engineer that did a bunch of Seattle stuff back in the day who worked on? Jack and Dino. Yeah. Did he work on the most recent record with you? No. No, we were going with this guy, Aaron Spiro in Tacoma, who's a badass. But um, I did a rec, one of the postpartum records with Jack and Dino actually recorded in our rehearsal room, which wow. was awesome. Because I was like, I was like, dude, I want you to make the record, but I don't have money to pay for a studio and you. Yeah, and he yeah, was like, yeah. he was like, I'll just come to your room and do it. He actually, there was no ISO booth. He sat in the room. And what his genius is, his thing, he's all about energy. I don't think he even cares what chord you're playing. He's just like, is this feeling good or not? You know, and uh, he definitely has a way of getting that energy in there. He's he's a really cool guy. I really like him a lot. But I also he's like an like an alchemist from the sounds of it. Yeah, and then when I recorded with him, it's like I definitely got a lot of things from him that I'll use forever. But you know, sometimes too, you know, the thing when you're in a band, you're stuck with these same guys. You got to get new energy in there from different people. You know, I would I would definitely make a record with Jack anytime in the future, but. Um, you know, it just, I also like changing it up because I get new, I have a lot of Jack's tricks from making two albums that I think are 
every band should have those tricks. He should write a book on them, but I also get new tricks from other people, you know. What happened with uh, Velvet Revolver? Am I right in thinking you jam with them? Yeah, I jam with them, and but I kept it secret. So I jam with them in a, uh, I don't know, I guess that was about 2003. Before, you know, they had Izzy Stradlin and Slash and all those guys in there. And that's when, uh, that's when I first, I've seen Duff at some of our shows before. I actually first met Duff at our practice room. So I could, our, he had seen us play or something or, and met one of our guys and he asked, it was really weird. He was like, can I come watch you guys rehearse? And I was like, sure. And, you know, so he showed up at the rehearsal and it, and I think he might've been scoping me out for the velvet revolver thing. And then a little while later then they gave me a bunch of songs. I met him at his house and we listened to, he said, just here's like 15 ideas, pick a handful. So I took a handful home and then I, dropped them into pro tools and kind of cut them up and spliced them around and made them work around a melody idea that I had. And then they flew me down to LA and then we recorded those songs together, like in a rehearsal room. But I don't think, I just don't think I was their guy. Cause I think slash wanted someone that's, you know, more like miles Kennedy with the kind of high end, like getting some of those iron maiden kind of notes and stuff like that. And that just ain't, I'm just not that kind of singer, you know? And of course, they then they had that other Scott Weiland came around. He's not the kind of singer either, but he sold 40 million records. Yeah. So <laughs> so I think Slash was willing to compromise his lose not having a singer with the high notes as long as they sold, you know, because I think everyone saw the super group idea. And so I think the thing that I played well on that is I was like, I don't, they even had like a, they were filming for some show. I think you can watch it. Like, yeah, there's a documentary on YouTube, I think. And they're trying to find, Yeah, I was having, I was having none of that. You know, I was like, I'll come sing your thing. And no one's filming me doing it because I'm not going to be the, I'm not going to have my biggest claim to fame being I'm the guy that didn't get the gig to sing for velvet revolver. So I, you know, that was kind of my stipulation. I was like, I'll do it, but I'm not doing your TV show. And Let so, me ask you uh, this: Did you did, did you take an audio recording of the practice? Have I do. I have a, I have a recording, but then what I did, I didn't share it with anybody. They had a thing in Rolling Stone where a bunch of people were like uh, showing the, tapes or whatever. Yeah, and then they had a whole article, and like, and I found that some of those guys never even met them. Like right. they got a tape to try out to, but they never. Uh, so those guys were exploiting it to try to get, and that just ain't my thing, you know. So. Uh, I think because of that, you know, Duff recognized I was worth having a relationship with because he knew he could trust me to not spill the beans. And so I never told anybody about it except for like my friends, never in any press or anything. And I made three records after that where I could have used that to at any time. Right. But then uh, he uh, we were doing an interview and he brought it up. And so when he brought it up, I was like, well, I guess it's free game. I can talk about this now at this point. <laughs> right. So, uh, but I, I was just always like, I would have never told anybody out of respect for those guys and their privacy and whatnot, you know. Cool experience though, right? Was it? Yeah. I mean, it was a great, I mean, I love those records. And then you're standing there with Slash and Izzy Stradlin and they're all, you, you know, those are the guys, when I was, you know, 13 years old or 14 years old, that was, the, that was the thing for me, you know, cause I was, like I said, with those heavy metal headbangers, ball bands and stuff, I was like, I ain't pretty enough to be in those bands. And I was like, and I, you know, 
no one wants to see me in spandex. I got, I was born without an ass or cab muscles, you know? And, um, so when Guns N' Roses came out, that's what me and all my friends looked like. We were a bunch of kids with faded jeans with holes in our knee in our knees. And we all had greasy, stupid leather jackets. And, um, th- they looked like we did, you know what I mean? They felt that was like the band for us, you know? And like I said, like we were caught between that. I was like, I'm not a spiked wristband, heavy metal guy, headbanger guy. And I'm not a super glam rocker dude. And so they kind of were that band for all the people that thought those other two extremes were a little kind of too ridiculous or something. They were kind of the band that for everyone else that didn't sit in either of those, you know, I wasn't into merciful fate and I also wasn't yeah, into yeah, wiener. Yeah. You know what I mean? I needed something in the middle, you know. So thank God for Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Were you a big Ramones fan growing up? Yeah, I mean, I love the Ramones. So and how I, was I grew how up was on touring with how was touring with Dee when you got to do that? Oh, it was great. When and this is uh I gotta tell you the the Dee Ramone calling me on the telephone because we had a <laughs> please we uh, we, I think we played the Big Dipper in Spokane was one of the shows. We did a little West Coast tour with him. And uh, when we played the Big Dipper, we were in this really horrible hotel room. And Dee Dee was like, a, of course, we were like four guys, that, you know, you know, just partying and getting crazy. And we we're overjoyed that we were on tour with Dee Dee Ramon. And, uh, and he called us up on the phone. He's like, hey, guys. Can you keep it down over there? We got a long drive tomorrow. <laughs> that's that was that's been our. We've been repeating that story for years. We really love that one. And then uh, when I met him, he was like, "Hey Jeff, don't you?" He's like, "I think your songs are just perfect. How they are. Don't let no producers put their chords in your song. They just want to. They just want part of your royalties, man. Don't let them do it. Your songs Amazing. are just fine. And if you got Didi Ramon telling you your songs are just fine, you're you're good." Well, he knew a thing or two about writing a good tune, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He's a genius. And we did play Idaho with him, too. And I always think about that song Danny says where he's like, you know, I, I, you know, record stores. and Got to go know. to Idaho. 20 yeah, below. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, and that's just, and I'm like, here I am playing Idaho with Dee Dee Ramon. You know? I live for little details like that. I love yeah. it. Well, I got to tell you, to, to me, like when we were talking about earlier with like, you know, if something didn't happen to me or if I wish that it was different, I actually am pretty grateful for all those experiences that I've gotten to have without having become a casualty to the rock stardom, you know? So those things to Still me are here. Yeah. They're gold, you know, and I have a, a, you know, I have a lot of rich memories with those kind of experiences and stuff. That's like stuff that, you know, basically, you know, I never wanted to be a rich, famous guy. I wanted to be in a rock band. I wanted to make records and I wanted to see the world and I wanted to play fucking rock and roll and make great records. At this point, I probably made, in my opinion, more and more records and better records than some of the bands that inspired me in the first place. And at this, and, uh, and I've got to have all those same experiences. Now I just wish that when I went back, I would have just added rich to my dream. You know, I want to be a rock star. I should have added, I want to be a rich rock star. Dream big. If you're going to dream, dream big, you know, but uh, so every all my dreams came true as far as that part went. I have no regrets about that, and I feel pretty fortunate to uh, have seen believed that stuff of people said if you work hard enough, it'll happen. 
you know. Yeah, you must have seen so many bands like you were telling me the other day, just as we approached the end as well, you were telling me about around that same time you did the DD tour. I guess this would have been like the first post-Stardom record. You were touring early on with Queens of the Stone Age as well, like mm-hmm. before they popped. And what was the exchange you had with Josh where he said something to you? Well, we we toured with them and uh, they had, you know, same thing back then. We had a lot of like people like Steve Jones and stuff like that that would call us up. And we had like Jim Dickinson who played with, you know, Bob Dylan on Time Out of Mind. He wanted to produce our record. And so we had, uh, you know, got in a lot of those bands came aware of our band. So um, there's this band Loudermilk and I wrote a couple songs with them and they were making a record at uh, Sound City. And on the other side, Queens were making the... Uh, rated R record. Yeah. And so in the lobby, they were asking those bands, like uh, the other band, like, you know, what are you into or whatever? And they're trading things. And he had played Josh, the first postpartum record or demos for that record. And so he, it was before we even made a record. So he invited us out to do some dates with them before we even made a record. Just on the strength of the demo. Yeah. And um, so we were stoked. It was like probably the first tour that we did with the national band you know it's just like a handful of shows but then you know one time he was actually really cool we were like i think we we're in victoria canada was the first show and it was a uh, really cold and we were actually in a minivan with a shitty trailer behind it and we were like at the end of the show we played the show they were great they were really nice and uh they were really receptive when we did sound check and everything and uh after the show, we were just sitting in the parking lot and like cuddling up into the van to go to freezing sleep. Freezing your ass off. Yeah. And he was like, what are you guys doing? And he's like, we're like, we're going to just sleep right here, man, going to bed. And he was like, he actually made the promoter get us hotel rooms and, and order us a pizza. And then for the rest of the, the shows, they made sure that the, every promoter got us a hotel room and, and food, which was really cool. But then he did take me on the bus and I was telling him, I was like, you know, he took me on the bus, but, uh, you know, and I was saying they were so powerful, you know, they were so powerful. They had to turn their amps away from the audience. Cause it was so loud. It was really an experience. And they were using these huge sun base cabinets and stuff like that. And, you know, like two of them in like a club for 200 people, you know, and I mean, it's just, and it was just melt your face off. And I was telling him, I was like, you guys are like the most powerful band I've ever seen. And he was like, yeah, but you write great songs. And I was like, you know, you get these little nuggets from people that you look up to and it, it's enough to keep you, uh, keep you thinking you're onto something, you know, that encouragement, it validates what you're doing, you know? Yeah, man. And as you say, it's not just people who are like well-known, but people who are, you know, the heads of their field, you know, mm-hmm. if they're, if they're going to compliment you on your craftsmanship, knowing that their craftsmanship is of the level that it is that's enough right there to know you're on for a good thing, right? Yeah. I mean, you hope so. I mean, well, at least it means that you feel accepted or validated for the thing because commercial success, like we talked about earlier with all the different band people that you're playing with and this and that, it can go, uh, uh uh-oh. I got to tell someone, suck it. (laughs) It's so good, dude. (laughs) uh, You know, they are. That's that famous Seattleites house you're renovating at the moment. <laughs> Just hang it. <laughs> yeah. That was actually the bass player for post-arm depression. Amazing. Yeah, it was. But um, I've already talked to him three times today. <laughs> so, seriously, I have like some little things going on. But uh, he was uh, pro- he's one of my favorite people on the planet, you know. 
but he's one of those guys too that he had some kids and he was just like i'm done you know he's like and he was in some bands before he played with us and he was just kind of uh that's why the missionary position had a key bass right because i was like i'll never have a cooler bass player than that guy he was so not gonna even try yeah so it's like so you know you can't they can't we we know we're gonna lose this game so we just won't play you know and he was that's how cool he was and then of course and didn't play with the bass player until duff came along which i figured is one of the best players bass players on the planet but who's cooler i don't know that's he's pretty fucking cool <laughs> yeah he definitely had the dd ramon thing going on he learned a lot from dd i suppose and that, well what are you going to say before the phone rang oh, i don't remember it's gone <laughs> well whatever oh, it was oh it was validation or something from the, yeah. you know, you get that acceptance from your peers or whatever. And I think at the end of the day, that's probably feels as good as a sports car or a swimming pool. You know, it's not tangible, but it, it's, you know, it goes with you, you know. Well, dude, it seems like life's good. And it seems like despite everything going on in the world at large, you seem happy and in a good place. And it's been really lovely talking to you, man. Yeah, it was a total pleasure. Thanks for uh, knowing who we are. Sometimes you do an interview and they're like, they never even heard you, you know, that you're, you're knowing they haven't even heard the record, you know, so it's great. Well, it's, it's always my thing to do my homework. And luckily, because I get to pick the guests because it's just my show, um, mm-hmm. I always pick people that I know I'm going to enjoy the work of, you know, and I've spent the last couple of weeks just digging, not just the walking paper stuff, but all the albums and just loads of great material man it'll be you know something that i revisit time and time again for a long time and i hope i got to see you play at hellfest in france a few years back but i hope to see you guys in a nice club show environment in the yeah, uk when when that kind of thing's allowed again and right. um keep doing it dude take care see ya catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.